You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, in Luke chapter 3, we move past the stories surrounding the birth of John and the birth of Jesus and even the early childhood of Jesus. And we fast forward into the adult ministry, uh, really of John the Baptist, which included the public launch of the ministry of Jesus in the sense of John's responsibility in baptizing Jesus. And in typical Luke fashion, we begin the third chapter with a time marker that is very specific. It says, verse 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, and most people put this at A.D. 29, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. And so there in verse 1, Luke gives us all of the political leaders Uh, in the various regions that would be touched by the ministry of John and, more importantly, the ministry of Jesus. Uh, He gives us all of the major political figures and leaders uh, at that time. And so you have uh, Caesar Tiberius, uh, who ruled from A.D. 14 to A.D. 37. You have Pilate, uh, who was, uh, of course, over the region, under the power of Rome, uh, over the region of Judea. And then you had Herod, uh, who was up in the north in the region of the Galilee. And this was the Herod, Herod Antipas, who ruled from 4 B.C. to A.D. 39. And then his brother, uh, Philip, who was caring for a region east of the Jordan uh, for almost as long as his brother Herod, from 4 B.C. to A.D. 34, and then this other leader, Lysanias, which we uh, really history doesn't know much of. And so you have all of these leaders mentioned politically. In verse 2, Luke records the religious leaders uh, in Israel at the time. And he says, verse 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. And during that time, he says in verse 2, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, uh, of course, it is worth noting at least that here you have two high priests mentioned and that John's ministry was during the high priesthood of two uh, individual high priests. And uh, the reality here is that the high priest was supposed to be the high priest for the entirety of their lives, but the Romans uh, didn't like to have leaders uh, that would last for that long of of time. And so uh, probably deposed by the Romans at A.D. 15, uh, Annas gave way to Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who occupied the position for another long time. Uh, stretch, but perhaps the people in Israel regarded Annas as the true and real high priest and Caiaphas sort of a figurehead, but they both apparently were operating in that role. And during that time, okay, so with all of those, you know, time markers of all the leaders at the time, it says that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And isn't that a beautiful phrase for the way that God's word interacted with John the Baptist. The word of God came to John. And a very uh, 
Old Testament prophet-like, uh, of which, of course, John really in one sense was the final of the Old Testament prophets. Even though he's you know, recorded for us in the New Testament, his ministry was very Old Testament-like. And so the word of God comes to him. It, it arrives to him. And he is simply responding to the word of God as it had come to his heart uh, there in the wilderness. And he, verse 3, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And Luke records that this had uh, biblical precedent, as it is written, verse 4, in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. It's worth noting, of course, that uh, as Luke quotes from Isaiah, verse uh, chapter 40, verse 3 through 5, the Septuagint version of Isaiah uh, it's important to note that John was going to have a ministry of preparation uh, for Jesus, making the paths of this king who would arrive straight, uh, filling in the valleys and uh, laying low the mountains and making straight the crooked pathways. And the rough places would be made level and verse 6, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And we've already seen Simeon hold Jesus and say, my eyes have seen God's salvation. And so this is a prophecy concerning Jesus, that by seeing Jesus, you're seeing the salvation uh, of God. But John's ministry, and this is the point of the quote, would be preparatory in nature for Jesus which is what is so interesting about the kind of baptism that he conducted in verse 3, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And in so many ways, John's version of baptism is so different from the version of baptism that we practice as New Testament believers, Christians uh, today. That's not to say that when we become baptized and, and at our baptisms, it, it's not to say that at those moments we aren't also saying, uh, listen, I'm done with that old life of sin and I'm sorry for it and I want to walk with God now. Uh, but in one sense, that's a secondary statement. The first statement of Christian baptism is simply to say that I agree with Romans 6. Romans 6 teaches that when I believe in Jesus and become born again, it's as if I was crucified with Jesus, buried with Jesus, and rose with Jesus. And here I stand in this water, and I'm dry, I'm going in, and I'm coming out. And it's a picture of my spiritual death and the new life, the resurrection life that I have in Jesus. But John's baptism was not a baptism of identification with Jesus. It was a baptism of repentance, it says, for the forgiveness of sins. And of course, for John to be showing people their sin and their need to repent and their, their, their guilt 
to show them all of that would be preparatory for the message of the gospel. You need to know that you're guilty. You need to know that you have a sin issue. You need to know that uh, you need saving in order to receive the message of salvation. And so John was there to really highlight in one sense the guilt of the people and preach this baptism of repentance and the need for the forgiveness of sins. And he said, therefore, to the crowds in verse 7, we have the actual words of John. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, how's that for an introductory word from John? It, the people come out to meet with him and he says, you brood of vipers. Uh, not very diplomatic, obviously, from John. Uh, Matthew tells us that John spoke this word specifically to the Pharisees and to the uh, Sadducees. Uh, but here, Luke records it as a general word to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him. John obviously didn't care very much about his own popularity or following. He cared about delivering the truth. And he says to them in verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, he's speaking to them of the need for genuine and real legitimate change. And of course, we understand on this side of the gospel that that true and genuine and real and legitimate change really is only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit whom we receive when we believe upon Jesus Christ. Now, he also tells them, listen, don't cling and put a false trust in your lineage or heritage. He says, don't say we have Abraham as our father. God could, from these stones, raise up children uh, for Abraham. Uh, now, this isn't the Lord saying that he's done with the people of Israel. Uh, no, not at all. But what John is saying to these people is, do not have a false trust in your ancestry uh, for salvation. You need to personally trust in the Lord. You need to personally cry out to the Lord. And isn't it true that we as people, we so often put our trust and our confidence and other things to save us, our good works, our church attendance, or just being a good person. I was in a city recently where just watching people, just observing people, uh, you know, a, a very, uh, you know, a kind of town that not a lot of believers actually live in, but, but a town where in just looking around, it was just a nice place. People were nice. People were kind. And it seemed to me that there seemed to be a gospel of kindness that had permeated that culture. That if I could just be a good person and just a kind person, then I am righteous. But of course, we need to realize that our trust cannot be in those things. It was wonderful to be a child of Abraham. It's wonderful to be a kind person. But it's only the blood of Jesus uh, that can change us and transform us and make us into a true and legitimate child of God in a spiritual sense. And so 
John declares to them, look, a day of judgment is coming. And even now the ax is laid to the root of the tree. Uh, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so he's announcing to them that a false repentance without real fruit is of no value. Now, in response, the crowds asked him in verse 10, what then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers asked him, verse 14, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Now, three times here, the question is asked of John, what shall we do? And just a beautiful response. And, and to me, this is evidence that the Holy Spirit was really working in John's life because, uh, you know, some people admire John for his tenacity and his, you know, confrontational approach and nature and all of that and attempt to emulate uh, the way that John lived his life and did his ministry. And what they end up finding is that people do not, at the end of receiving from them, say, what shall we do? Uh, oftentimes, I think, because the Holy Spirit isn't in them doing that. John had a special call of God upon his life to be this highly confrontational figure calling out the sin of the people in Israel. And there was an effectiveness, so much so, that people then asked, what shall we do? And it's interesting because John then began to speak of a righteous uh, life. And he tells them, the first group in general, he says, you know, if you have two tunics, then share with the person who has none and do the same with your food. And to the tax collectors who, you know, made a living quite often through dishonest means and collecting more than they were authorized to collect, he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. And then soldiers who would often make money through bribes and extortion, he said, don't extort from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content uh, with your wages. And the interesting thing here, you know, some people call this an interim ethic as they await the coming of Christ. And, you know, that's true in one sense. He couldn't say to them things like, well, go plant churches and share the gospel message. It wasn't yet clear yet. Jesus hadn't died on the cross. The Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out. They weren't going to go out and plant churches at this, this particular time. But isn't it interesting that in John's response to all three groups, the general people, uh, or population, the tax collectors, number two, and the soldiers, number three. In all three people groups, John exhorted them uh, to live righteously in the financial realm. You know, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Uh, your, what, the, way, the way we handle our money, it says something about the status uh, of our heart. And when we, you know, are faithful with it and obey the Lord with it, it's really sort of that final frontier of obedience unto God. You know, ask me to do anything, but when it comes to my money, uh, that's where I am Lord. And here John is saying, no, you need to uh, do certain things financially. The first group, he says, be generous, basically. If you have two tunics and you have some leftover food, then be a person who shares. 
be a generous person and, you know, is willing to give. And then to the tax collectors, well, what's his exhortation to them? Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And so really it seems that he's highlighting honesty there, integrity uh, there financially. And then finally to the soldiers, he says, don't extort, uh, but be content with your wages. And that is a beautiful thing for a believer to learn. Paul mentioned to the Philippians in Philippians chapter four, that he had learned the secret of contentment. And really that's the center of his statement there that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me specifically in Paul's mind in that context was knowing how to be abased financially and how to abound financially. He's saying, I know how to be content. I can do anything through Christ Jesus, even be content. And, uh, you know, isn't that true? It's so difficult to be content with what God has allotted to us in this life and what has come, in, come to us from his hand. And so difficult at times to know when am I pursuing, you know, perhaps uh, advancement or promotion? When am I doing those things out of a lack of contentment? And when am I doing those things while being a content person? And so it behooves us to go to the Lord, to search him and to ask him, Lord, help me to be content. Am I being content? And that was what John directed them to be people who were faithful financially. And so I just think it's interesting that in this righteous life that he describes in three separate ways, when they say, what then shall we do? He went straight for the financial realm in all three categories. And as the people, verse 15, were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all. I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, this is interesting because John, like many other great men or women in scripture, the second that he realizes that undue attention is being paid to him, they, they start wondering, is this the Christ? The moment that he realizes that, John answers them and he just begins to speak of Jesus, to broadcast Christ. And he tells them, he says, listen, uh, I am not worthy to untie his sandal strap. I mean, in those days, there were rabbis, and as a learner, you would do anything for your rabbi all the way down to the point of washing his feet. That was something that as a disciple, you would not do. That was reserved for the common slave. And of course, in the washing of feet, there was the loosing of the sandal strap. And John is saying, listen, I'm not even worthy to come up to that great privilege of um, loosing the straps of Jesus's uh, sandals on his feet. And so just beautiful. He just honors the Lord. But notice there that he gives a couple of promises about Jesus. He says, when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit uh, and also fire. Now, the question, of course, is, what is this baptism 
with the Holy Spirit that Jesus would conduct. Now, I'd be remiss not to mention that for many people, they believe that all John is referring to is quite simply uh, what it means to be born again. Jesus announced in John chapter 3 that to be born again, to place your faith and trust and confidence in Jesus, to believe the gospel, means that you are born again and that you are born of the Spirit. And of course, we know from Ephesians 1 and other places in the New Testament that when we become Christians, truly regenerated, truly born again, when that happens, God the Father places the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, inside of us. We become the temples of the Holy Spirit at the moment of our conversion. And so some people think that that's all John is referring to, that, hey, when you believe in Jesus, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. Of course, I believe that that is absolutely true. When you believe in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. But, you know, after Jesus rose from the dead, he breathed on his disciples in John chapter 20, it says, and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And I believe that they did. And then after that event in Acts chapter 1, Jesus, in those first words of Acts chapter 1, told them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water. But you, speaking to his disciples, speaking to these men that he had breathed on and said, receive the Holy Spirit, he said to them, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then a couple of verses later, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It seems that Jesus, what he was communicating to these men was, listen, I breathed on you. I said, receive the Holy Spirit, but now I'm going to depart and I want you to wait for the spirit, not to dwell inside of you. That happened at their conversion. That happened the second that they were born again. The spirit came to live within them, to help them in their own personal walk with the Lord, to speak to their hearts, to teach them the word of God, to help them walk in the spirit so they would not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But they also had not just those things to do, but the massive project of evangelizing the world and preaching the gospel to all nations and making disciples. How in the world would they, they do that? And Jesus said, well, you know, John said, and, and, and I believe that you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, and the Holy Spirit will give you the power to be my witnesses uh, in the entire world. And so I believe here that when John refers to Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit and, and fire, uh, you know, John was out there in the water dunking people into the water. Uh, they'd be immersed and covered with water when they were done being baptized by John. Jesus, though, baptizes and immerses us in a different substance entirely, the Spirit of God. And that's what the world needs. The world needs believers who are saturated with filled with the Holy Spirit flowing out of their lives. The world needs believers who, when believers interact with them, what they're being impressed with is the Spirit of God. Not that individual believer, but the Holy Spirit. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so just asking the Lord to come upon our lives and to strengthen us, to empower us 
for the work of ministry that he has called us to do uh, in this world. And that's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is all about, is about getting the job done. Not our own personal experience, but going out into the world and being obedient to the Lord, planting churches, raising up elders and pastors, evangelization. All of this requires the Holy Spirit upon our lives. But John also says he'll baptize you with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so John here also indicates that Jesus is coming for judgment as well. And a judgment that is not just temporary, but eternal. Because he says there at the end of verse 17, the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That means it's unending. It's never satisfied. Unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So John's great boldness uh, in preaching also landed him in jail because he spoke out against Herod, who had basically stolen his brother Philip's wife, a woman named Herodias, and uh, we'll see them a little later in Luke's gospel. But he, at this point, locks John up in prison. Now, going back into that ministry of John, there was one beautiful day in John's ministry, the greatest thing that John could have done. It says, now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Now the other gospels tell us that when Jesus went to be baptized by his relative John, by his cousin John, both men the same age, three months apart, that when he went in to be baptized, John said, I should not be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. But Jesus answered, let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And I think Jesus, of course, he, he wasn't being baptized for sin. Uh, he wasn't repenting or confessing or being forgiven. But I think he was identifying himself with us. But either way, uh, whether he was identifying with us or just going through this public scene in order to be publicly anointed by the Father, he was praying there in verse 21, Luke tells us. And at that moment, the spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And the father spoke from heaven and said, you are my beloved son. and With you, I am well pleased. And in one sense, this would simply validate Jesus before many witnesses. But notice the way that Luke records it. He says, the father said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. In other words, this word was for Jesus to receive, for Jesus to be encouraged by, for Jesus to be blessed by. And I think in one sense that this word, if I could say it this way, it would encourage and strengthen Jesus for the difficult work that was ahead. Now Jesus, verse 23, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And so now Luke gives us the genealogy of Jesus uh, all the way to the end 
of uh, Luke chapter 3. He tells us he was about 30 years of age uh, at this point. And then he gives us this genealogy from the line of Joseph. And he goes through and talks about Joseph, the son of Heli. And then he says in verse 24 of Matat, Levi, Melchi, Jani, Joseph, Mattathias, Amos, Nahum, Esli, Nagai, Maath, Mattathias, Simeon, Josek, Joda, Joanan, Ressa, Zerubbabel, Shaltiel, Neri, Melchi, Adai, Kosam, Elmadam, Ur, Joshua, Eliezer, Joram, Mathat, Levi, Simeon, Judah, Joseph, Jonan, Eliakim, Maliah, Mina, Mattatha, Nathan, the son of David, verse 31, Jesse, verse 32, Obed, Boaz, Selah, Nashon, Aminadab, Admin, Arnai, Hezron, Perez, the son of Judah, verse 33, the son of Jacob, verse 34, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. And then he goes past even Abraham, and that's where Matthew had stopped his genealogy, but he goes even before Abraham to Terah, Nahor, Sarug, Reu, Peleg, Eber, Shelah, Canaan, Arphaxad, Shem, Noah, the son of Lamech, Methuselah, verse 37, Enoch, Jared, Mahalalel, Canaan, Enos, the son of Seth, verse 38, the son of Adam, the son of God. And so Luke takes Jesus' genealogy all the way back to the original man, partly to show us that the perfect man, Jesus Christ, has now come. I should mention this to you. Did you notice? Here is Luke recording for us literal, historical human beings and saying Jesus came from their line. And he goes all the way back literal historical human beings like David, according to those prophecies, and Judah, according to those prophecies, and Abraham, according to those prophecies, all the way down to the first literal historical man, the son of Adam, the son of God. And so just remembering that according to Luke and God's word, Adam was a literal historical human being. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateoldridge.com.